Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is producer-engineer Jack Beely. But first, streaming services are making more money, and it's on the backs of artists and songwriters. Yeah, the figures are in from last year, and streaming grew by about 12%. Now, 67% of their income was paid to labels with streaming services keeping about a little under 33%. Now, keep in mind that the average artist deal is 25% of what the label collects. If you're a superstar, you might get up to 50%, but most artists get 25%. So, all that being said, the streaming services kept about 1.1% more than they did the year before. And you think, okay, 1.1%, that doesn't sound like much. Yeah, but there's so much money being pulled in that it's $108 million that didn't go to artists and bands and songwriters. That's a big deal. And it's being swept under the rug for the most part. So why did this happen? Well, in 2017, Spotify complained to the record labels that it wasn't making enough money and it needed what they called margin relief. So what all the record labels, major and indie, what they did was they cut Spotify a special deal. And they basically cut down what they'd take from 55% to 52% of the prorated net revenue. Now don't get too hung up on that because that goes deep into the weeds of how all this is figured out. So what makes this an even bigger deal is the fact that last month the Copyright Royalty Board raised songwriter royalties 44% over the next five years. So songwriters have been complaining for a long time that they're not making much from streaming revenue. They get about a tenth of what an artist gets. So this is a pretty welcome thing to them, and it's not a huge amount of money when it's all said and done. But the only streaming service that went for this was Apple Music. And everybody else said they were going to appeal the ruling. This is Spotify, Google, Pandora, and Amazon. They're all appealing. So, no one has quite figured this out yet, that all these companies actually made more money last year on the backs of artists and record labels and bands and songwriters, and yet they're trying to keep even more money by appealing this increase in songwriter royalties. Hopefully people will figure this out soon and you'll see even more of an outcry than we're seeing now. Already there's a big backlash that's happening against Spotify, especially from a number of major artists. So I think what you're going to see in the coming days and weeks is a bigger backlash even still. And this is all because of something called margin relief. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosenskycourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now, in the world of audio... There's something new that's coming to your concert hall, and it's called beamforming audio. Now, beamforming has been used in a lot of different areas in the past, but never audio. 
And we're seeing it in the brand new Madison Square Garden Sphere Arena in Las Vegas. This is going to open next year in 2020. And they're using beamforming audio. Now, why? Okay, first of all, beamforming audio came from Philips Research in 2012. That's when they got the patent. And what it is is right now we're using an array of loudspeakers for concert sound reinforcement. And what happens is we have pretty equal coverage, but it's not great. So in other words, if you're sitting in the front, it's usually a whole lot louder than if you're sitting in the middle or the back, even though you may have distributed speakers all over. It's still not even, and there are places where you're not hearing the frequency response as you'd like. Well, beamforming audio supposedly takes care of that. And what it does is it delays the audio, and it plays it at different volumes, and it uses cancellation effects so that no matter where you are in the arena, you hear exactly the same thing. Now, like I said before, this is already being used. One of the devices that's pretty popular that's out there that you might have that uses beamforming is the Apple HomePod. And Apple actually got its own patent on this a few years ago. But there's a lot of other technologies that have been using beamforming for a long, long time. Radar, for instance, sonar, seismology, wireless radio, radio astronomy, biomedicine, they all use beamforming. And the problem was that it was so expensive to use in audio that they couldn't really do it until now. Now the cost of microprocessors has come down to such a degree that now the processing can be pretty intense and still could be relatively inexpensive. So look for beamforming audio at an arena near you, although the very first one is going to be that MSG Sphere in Las Vegas, which should be really interesting. Again, it, one of the things that you'll find is it's shaped like a big round sphere. So that's pretty cool in itself. So look for that to happen very soon. My guest today is producer engineer Jack Mealy, who's won a Grammy, Emmy, four Telly Awards, and two Global Music Awards. Based in New Orleans, Jack has a wide range of studio credits that include Rod Stewart, The Roots, Beyonce, Aloe Black, and the Zac Brown Band, among many others. As a composer, Jack's work has been featured on TV shows like American Horror Story, Anthony Bourdain's The Layover, and Toddlers and Tiaras, among others, and his work has been used in commercials for Mercedes, IBT Clothing, and Mountain Dew, also among many others. In the interview, we talked about the state of recording in New Orleans, how musicians learn on the job there, the unique ways that musicians get paid, recording the tape, and much more. I spoke with Jack from a studio in New Orleans. Tell me how you get into this business. I know you're a musician first and foremost, but uh, tell me about that. Yeah, I uh, I got into it. I mean, I've been doing it. Well, it's funny. And you say this business, I, uh, I, I actually originally got into it, like you said, as a musician. I got into it when I was 15 and um, and basically started playing gigs, you know, just learned how to play guitar and and drums and bass and, and got in a bunch of bands and started playing. And as far as the um, the engineering uh, producing end of things, it was more of a sort of a means to an end. I've I've said I've said this before that nothing quite you know it's, it's something that's built out of necessity. So you know nothing nothing makes motivation like the need for something you know. And my band you know needed a, a, re a recording and nobody else wanted to do it and or i always would go to the studio and walk out and it would never sound the way i heard it in my head and so you you just you start to 
pick it up like that. You sort of watch what's happening. And, and I started to, uh, I started to buy gear when I was, I've always had a, a you know, a penchant for gadgetry, <laughs> you know, and, and I, I love gear and guitars. And I was sort of one of those guys. And, uh, my grandfather used to, um, own his, he was an electrician. He owned his own, uh, TV and radio repair shop. So as a kid, you know, I used to see this, this radio repair shop with all these tubes and all this, old hi-fi equipment and stuff and it was just fascinating to me and i was always sort of an a record audiophile guy you know who who wanted to uh and i didn't i didn't know anything about what sounded good and what didn't sound good i just know that i loved music and i would love putting the record on the the turntable and you know placing the needle down by hand and you know so i think the love of that sort of translated into what became making those those same records that i loved playing all all those years you know where did you grow up uh, i grew up in a, a suburb of new orleans called metairie it's um it's about it's like it's right on i grew up less than a mile from the new orleans line you know so i mean i grew up in new orleans you know i mean my my house is seven streets away from the border between metairie and uh and New Orleans, uh, right by the 17th Street Canal. So I grew up in a suburb called Metairie and um, went to school there. Was born and raised there, and you know, grew up with all that, all that music and all that culture around me. I, uh, I just recently bought a house north of the city, about um, about 40 miles north of the city. So uh, I commute, and I still have I still have a house in Metairie, but I commute every day uh, when I'm up here to the studio because my studio is. Uh, in the heart of the the city, it's right in the Garden District. Well, if you started at fifteen, which is pretty young, but considering where you're at, it makes perfect sense because there's so much music and so many gigs and everything happening down there. Oh man, I uh, you'll have to excuse me if I'm stuffed up. Um, yeah. I uh, when I tell you that I started my first paying gig was when I was fifteen. That was my first professional paying gig, and. When I tell you that I, when I was young, I mean, I was grinding it out. Like I would, uh, I got, I was really always known as a guitar player writer. I was, I was a composer and that's really what I wanted to do. I wanted to either be in the biggest band on, on earth, you know, uh, I wanted to be the guitar player for Kiss or something, or I wanted to be, you know, Bernard Herman, you know, or Danny Elfman or somebody like that. Like I wanted to write for movies because i'm a huge cinemaphile i love movies so uh, what i did was i actually uh, when i was young i went to school for music but i i uh um I, I basically took every course i went for jazz performance and i took every course i could until all i had left was math and english <laughs> and, and then i dropped out uh, but at that time when i dropped out of, of college i um I was I was playing on Bourbon Street three nights a week. I had my band that I'm still in today uh, called the Molly Ringwalds. We're like a touring '80s tribute band, um, but we, we do really well. It's very Vegas in style. The, like it's a big, like almost like the Blue Man Group or something. Uh, so I do. Uh, I was doing Bourbon Street three nights a week. I was doing the Mollies on the weekends because I was doing. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday on Bourbon Street. Then I would do Friday, Saturday with the Mollies. And then I had a job working for a software company called JRL Enterprises. And I would get paid a lot of money to sit at home and write music per hour. So every week I was, and I mean, you know, it wasn't a, a 
to me, it was a lot of money. It was like, I think, I think I was getting paid $35 an hour or something. But when you're 21 and you know, you're basically a kid, you know, to get paid that much money to sit at home and write music like I'd be doing anyway. It was like, it was unbelievable. I was, I, I, so basically I had all this money and I didn't know what to do with it at that age. Cause as kids do, they, you know, yeah. of course, of course we're not going to save it. What's saving it? You know? So you go out and you start buying gear and that's basically what happened is that as I made money, I would take that money. And I would instantly buy gear and I didn't even know what I was buying. I remember I, a microphone that you're using, uh, SM7, you know, I remember buying one of those, you know, before I even knew really what it was good for. I just knew that everyone had one, you know, so I bought it. And uh, and now I still have that exact same mic, <laughs> the one I bought when I was 21. And uh, and I use it for, you know, everything, you know, everything from vocals to snare drum, sure. you know. So, so yeah, it's, it's uh, that's sort of how I came up and I didn't really do my first record until I was, um, I was, I was in the, it was for the Mollies. Once again, the band needed a Christmas single, uh, for, to be on this compilation record. We didn't want to buy the studio time. And we, I did it on, I did it on one of those. It's outdated now, but, uh, one of those, um, uh, Yamaha mini disc four tracks. Wow. You know, right. Yeah. It's totally and I still have it, by the way, <laughs> but it's like totally out of out of date format. Uh, it's like doing it on Laserdisc or something. You know, I did it on one of those and it came out. I can't even listen to it now, but I thought it came out great. And I remember I locked myself in my apartment for the entire weekend working on this one song. And uh, and, you know, that I only bought that four track so that I could write music for the software company. That's why I bought it, you know, and then so. It's sort of like, okay, well, I know a little bit about recording because I have this job, so I'll do it. You know, so I basically did it and mixed it and it came out and uh, and it was just all downhill after that. I, I started buying, I, bought, I remember like, why can't I buy an ADAT rig? Because at the time, ADATs were just going out, like Pro Tools Digio 1 had just come out. So when I've always been a big proponent of buying gear one tier back. So, so that you don't pay the ridiculous amount of money for certain stuff, especially stuff like that you know is going to be extinct, like a computer. Like I never buy the latest, greatest computer. I always buy one one generation back so you don't pay $4,000 for this computer that's going to be worth $40 in eight years. Yeah. You know, Because a computer, it's like an ice sculpture. You know, I mean, you, you buy it and it's beautiful and it's instantly melting. And in eight years, it's just going to be a little puddle of, of crap. <laughs> you know, uh, So that's what I did. I started buying eight app rigs and I started recording everybody I knew for free just to get the, the experience of trying to do it, experimenting. And boy, was it a was it a hard learning curve? I mean, it took years to years and revelations of and a lot of help from people who were better than me you know, to, uh, to get to that point. That's the way it usually works. Yeah. I mean, there was, there are a certain number of guys who, man, just their phone was just on speed dial. And, uh, you know, I pretty much owe, you know, 75% of what I know to those guys because they were so forthright with information. And so I tried to do that too. I mean, I can't tell you, I get blown up. I get blown up so much people asking questions what do you think of this? How do you do this? What is a good EQ for a kick drum? What's whatever, you know, it's, 
So, and I, and I never, ever tell people no. I always just answer the question and try to be helpful. Yeah, you know, it's something that I find, too. When I wrote my first book, Mixed Engineer's Handbook, I knew all the best mixers in town. And I was surprised because I went to them all and I asked them questions. Well, how do you do what you do? How do you do this? How do you do that? And all of them were very open about what they did. And I asked somebody, aren't you afraid about giving away some secrets? And the answer was, no, because nobody does it like me anyway. Right. And I, I can't, I cannot stress this. I, all right. So because I run, I run one of the bigger studios in town, right? Yeah. So New Orleans isn't, isn't one of, it's not LA, you know, so it's not one of the, or Nashville. It's not one of these places where there's a huge studio in every corner, you know? Um, and really, you know, Nashville is like that, but LA is even starting. A lot of the big studios are starting to close, but, um, there's only maybe three or four big studios in town. And I, and I'm one of those. And, um, I, I can't tell you how many interns I get who come from recording school. Yeah. These guys graduate with a diploma saying that they're certified by, you know, some ether in the air to, to be an engineer. And it's unbelievable how much they don't know. Yeah. And, and, uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I feel the same way that the guys that you interviewed feels like, because it's about your ears. I, I everything you need is right here. And, and I, I, I just can't, I asked a, a kid one time who was, uh, he had graduated from one of the main major conservatories and I won't name any names, but, uh, but it's one of the big ones. And, and I asked myself, how many critical listening classes have, did you guys take? And he said, none, he absolutely zero. I was like, how do you, how do you diagnose problems? How do you, how do you listen to something and go, wow, there's way too much uh, compression on that snare drum. There's, it's, it sounds like a, like a piece of loose leaf paper. It's like, or there's, you know, this, 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 this mix is so brick walled that you can't, you know, there's no dynamics in the mix whatsoever. There's no, you know, there's, there's all sorts of things or, you know, everybody like, why is Fleetwood Mac rumors a great stellar sounding recording? You know, why is, um, Eye in the Sky by Alan Parsons Project, a stellar recording. Why are these, you know, why do those recordings, you know, stack up against these newer recordings? What's different about them? Why? So it's unbelievable that I remember, um, I remember sitting down, this is a guy who wanted, it was a young kid. He wanted to, uh, to be a rock producer. You know, he was, he was young, he's 19 or something. And I said something about Appetite for Destruction you know, and he didn't know what I was talking about. And, and, and I was like, I said, how, how can you not know one of the greatest rock records of the modern, the modern era? You know, I mean, it's, it's like, you know, what, what, you know, say what you will about Guns N' Roses, but it's, it's undeniable that that record is, you can hear, you can hear the aggression on that record, you know, the cult electric, you know, like all, all those kind of records that have these great sonics that you're like, man, how can you not know about these records and you want to do, they don't do the research. And that's what's amazing. You know, it's interesting. One of the things that I lament is the fact that there are fewer and fewer big studios. Actually, the, it's kind of settled down. The, we're not seeing many of them close anymore, but there are fewer of them that, that there used to be. So there are fewer positions for assistants. And one of the great things about being an assistant 
in the studio system was the fact that you got a reference point, and this goes to your critical listening statement, where you heard what's good, you heard what's bad, you heard what was great. And once you got that in your head, you had it forever. You had that reference point. And that's the problem when you're not exposed to that. You don't have that reference point yet, and it's really difficult to get in your own, as you know. Right. I am absolutely blown away by, and like I said, I'm not looking to rag on the, you know millennials or anything. I'm just saying that I'm, I'm blown away at how little, how little listening people do. You know, like they're at least from my point of view. Like when I talk to people, like you know, they're like like when I tell you that every day when I come home after ten hours of being in the studio listening to music, I come home and I have like a killer audiophile, like hi-fi, you know, rig at my house. And I will listen to music when I get home, you know, and, you know, and I, I put it on and I, I, I marvel at, at how great some of these recordings are. And I just enjoy it as a listener and, and I'm, but I'm absorbing, you know, and uh, that's how I, that's one of the things that people ask me all the time is how do you know so many songs like on guitar? Like it's because I sat down and I, I, I listened, you know, and once you get to a certain level of playing, I mean, you can hear the changes. Like, like, I don't need to sit there and learn it anymore. The changes are in my head and I can hear where it's going to go. Yeah. You know, so that, that was one of the things that you had to learn if you were going to play on Bourbon Street. Because some nights, some nights you play eight, nine hours straight, you know, and, uh, and you know, you, uh, you would do eight or nine what's called sets. And a set is 45 minutes with a 15 minute break. Mm -hmm. But sometimes you would do three sets in a row. So you do three sets of 45 and then you would take 30. 30 minute break, Yeah, you know? So, so, but when you do that, people would shout stuff. I mean, there's no, the band leader would shout out a song and God help you. If you didn't, if you didn't know it, you, you had to, you, you just had to play. You had to go, what key is this in? And you go, it's in eight, you today, or it's in B flat or whatever. And then you go, okay. And you just, you, you learn how to hear the changes, you know? And, and so many guys, well, you know, it's 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 a dying art, but so many guys know you know are great at doing that down there. Well, let's talk about that for a second because New Orleans just has the most unique musical scene, and the musicians in Louisiana in general that I've found are are a step above everybody in terms of feel, if nothing else. There's something that's undeniable that you know whether they have major technique. And most of them do that I've found, but whether you have it or not, there's a feel that makes up for any deficiencies that you might have. They're probably more deficient in technique and more proficient in, in like you said, feel. Like, but this is a town that has, without a doubt, the best drummers of any city in America. Like, I, I would put the drummers of New Orleans up against any, any city in America because of the pocket. You know, the pocket is so deep on some of these drummers and basically drummers and B3 players. Yeah. The yeah. best in the world, you know. So um, now it's funny. Guitar players, you know, hit and miss. So, I mean, definitely some of the funkiest guitar players, but like, but, but it's, I find that they're more hit and miss, especially when I'm like hiring cats, you know, for the studio. Uh, but there are some really great ones, amazing ones, but I feel like the drummers are growing on trees. You know, you can, it's almost like you can, you can't, even the drummers who can't get a gig are amazing. Wow. You know, 
So it's 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 really it's insane, you know. Um, What's the gigging scene like there now? Has it changed at all? Or it used to be so vital. There is so many gigs around. Is it still the same? Yeah. The, all right. So this is this is a, a semi loaded question. So the the gig scene down here, there there are tons of gigs. It just depends on whether or not you want to make money. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, yes, there are a ton of gigs, but there are only a compartmentalized amount that that really yield some without you know real money. Um, when you go on Bourbon Street uh, and you get into one of the bands down there, you can make a lot of money quick. Uh, I want to say a lot of money. You know, I, I don't I don't necessarily know what people consider to be a lot of money, I, but I, I will. Uh, I will humor you with some with some numbers like the so you might get paid thirty five dollars or so per set on on Bourbon Street. So it's for a forty five minute set, you get paid thirty five bucks plus tips. So um, so at the end of a night, if you do eight sets, so it's eight times thirty five plus whatever the tips are. So you can walk away at the end of a, at the end of a night with you know two or three hundred bucks. And then at the, if you do that four days a week, you're it's a you know it's about a thousand twelve hundred dollars a week. Uh, is, so that's not it's not bad, you know. I mean, when you when you think about it, I mean, it's like you're talking about you know fifty two grand a year to be a musician. Most musicians would jump at that, right? But here's the but: the but is there is no real like artistic. It's there's nothing like it as an artist to be to be excited about. Like I mean, there's you will play Sweet Home Alabama and me and Bobby McGee five times a night, you know. And so it's I equate it almost to like being like on a cruise ship. Funny you should bring that up. Yeah, it's sort of like that, you know. Now you go down a little bit to Frenchman, and Frenchman Street is like the new Bourbon Street. It's all the younger hipper which i don't even really agree with that but it's like it's more of the hipsters is right you know it's like the younger uh, it's mostly younger imports meaning like it's all the kids who got stars in their eyes and wants want to come to new orleans to make it as a musician and they get here and they get a gig on on bourbon street i'm sorry on frenchman street excuse me and uh but frenchman street man You'll, I, I actually have friends who are now doing very well, thank God. But they're uh, they were horn players that they would go down there for five, six, seven hours and play, and they walk away with thirty bucks, yeah. you know. And I'm like, man, how can and, and this this guy, you know, had a kid, and I'm like, how how you do this? How can you do this? It's such a it's such a colossal waste of time that, and the gig that he got you know, really ended up not being from, from anybody seeing him at all. Now you make a lot of friends, but when I tell you that the saturation point is so, is so crazy down there and like the Frenchman street crowd sort of snubs their nose at the bourbon street crowd and the bourbon street crowd, just, they have guys on there that I call, you know, lifers. I mean, they, they basically are, um, I mean, I know guys seriously that have been down there for 30 years you know, and, you know, they still do it. There are, there's no retirement 401k plans, <laughs> you know, in place. So, but the French Street crowd, you'll hear some great music, some, some fabulous music. And, and I, and I think that 
Um, the problem is, is that the bars tend to have this mentality that they are doing the musicians a favor by letting them play. And that's, it's the most slanted, uh, viewpoint I can even think of, you know, I mean, without the musicians, there is no club, you know, and the problem is that even when certain pockets of musicians take a stand and say, we're not going to play for less than this amount of money. There's always some kid who just got to town who comes in and says, I'll do it for that amount of money. And so there's no, there's no union. Like, you know how like in national, everybody's the union's huge. Everybody's unionized. It, it doesn't, it just doesn't exist here. Yeah. It's like it exists, but it doesn't exist. I don't know. A, I, I, I can name, three musicians off the top of my head that I know out of the thousands that are in the union in New Orleans. Let's talk about your studio for a second and what you do. Considering that you're right in the middle of town, what kind of music do you generally record? I've done everything from, from rap to hard rock to, I was the, uh, the music producer for American Horror Story. Um, I, uh, I did, uh, I produced Blues Travelers uh, last record. Actually, two records ago now. They they actually had another one come out since. Um, you know, I've done everything from, you know, big, big recordings like like you know, Rod Stewart and, and Zach Brown band and and stuff like that to, you know, just local, you know, local guys. Like right now, I just finished working on a couple of uh, young bands that three really impressive projects that I, I'm, I'd like to give a shout out to. One is a, a band called the Iceman Special, which um, they're getting a lot of traction lately. And uh, they're sort of like a prog rocky kind of band, but almost like a, like they're, they're going to kill it in that sort of widespread panic type of, uh, you know, festival kind of kind of crew they're almost like like sid barrett era pink floyd or something or it's 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 but rock it's really it's it's very interesting so uh i just did their first they did they cut two records simultaneously and released them separately so i produced engineered and mixed all of those and i even mastered one of them and then uh the other one uh was uh tiffany pollock and eric johansson it's a blues rock album that uh that just came out on the 15th of this month and uh, is doing very well the reviews are coming in and it's stellar i can't i just can't couldn't be happier about it uh so that record is doing really well and then there's a band called sinclair uh with a c c-i-n-c-l-a-r-e that uh they did a, an ep with me and they sound like a cross between like the shins and the beach boys or something mm -hmm. like they're killing harmonies, three piece, uh, band, a real thoughtful songs, songwriter kind of stuff. Their record has not yet been released, but it will be very soon. Jack, I'm curious. So I know you do a lot of high level acts and they're used to recording all over and they have their way of doing things. That being said, if you get a local artist or, or a local band in, do they like to record all live together? Is there a lot of that? Like, like in Nashville, for instance, where you get the crew in, they, you know, you get nine people, they all play together and it sounds great, but it doesn't happen like that at other places. But considering the, the level of musicianship, does that happen? It depends. It depends on the act. Yeah. Uh, like the Iceman special, they're a five piece band, five piece. I think they're, I think they're a four piece band. Uh, 
they did they did 19 songs in two days wow and it was when i talk about like I, the way that i produced it i said i don't want to do a bunch of crap in post i said i want to try and capture the way the band sounds if there's some sort of delay or reverb or crazy effect that you use on your guitar live i want it played that way so there's actually playing even the solos were done live wow. switching pedals like all the basically i want you to go play a gig you know and we did very very few overdubs i love it yeah oh yeah it was great and and the record you'd never know it because the record sounds produced it doesn't sound like some live in the studio thing it sounds like a produced record so uh now the uh sinclair record and the eric and tiffany record will do like rhythm section stuff uh the eric and uh, me and my producing partner brent arsenal he uh him and I basically became the band for that Eric and Tiffany thing. We we had a band cut half the record, and then for budget concerns, we couldn't afford to, have to hire him again. Uh, so we said, well, we'll just be the band. I got an intern to hit the record button, and I played bass, and Brent played drums, and Eric played guitar. We did trio simultaneously. Then Brent is a killer B3 player and piano player, so he went back and put B3 and piano and everything, and I put extra guitar and and even the vocals were cut live you know so you try to get as much as you can because you, you go you know you're trying to create a moment but then you know i get hired a lot of times for artists that aren't you know the best live you know so i need to try and bring you know the best out of them that i can and i understand that in some cases that that talent that's within them isn't going to shine if I just throw them to the wolves. You know, I have to sort of pull it out of them sometimes one line at a time, you know, and it just depends on who the artist is. Yes. So that that's a roundabout of answering your question. You have uh, an analog tape machine, don't you? Yeah, 24-track uh, Otari MTR uh, 90 Mark II. I even have the all the time. I just scored on eBay Somebody was selling for five hundred bucks a um, a complete placement head for it that looked like it had never been used. Like the the heads look perfect on it, so I bought a secondary um, head stack in case one I have goes out. Uh, but I use it all the time. I bought it from a church in Nashville, and those things, man, the price on them is going up so much. Like all my friends make fun of me because I'm like the king of like getting finding these deals. Well, you know, I don't like I bought that machine for eighteen hundred bucks and it is totally worked, you know, and there was uh, I did buy a new remote, but I found a remote for one hundred and fifty bucks, huh. you know, and so it's like under two grand. And I had a, a great working tape machine. I run it 30 ips four ninety nine because I don't need I don't have noise reduction. So the machine sounds great. I also have a one of those 16 track Fostex uh can't remember what it's i remember it yeah it's like the e e something e 16 so it's 16 track one inch is what it is mm -hmm. i have one of those that i'll use like if we're doing like more of like an indie thing you know it's a darker sounding machine so if i have like an indie project or something i want to sound a little grittier i will uh i'll use that i also have the pro version of uh of the the otari two track it's the mtr 10 yeah i think it's a quarter inch two track 
for designed for mix down and broadcast. I found it in the back of somebody's garage for two hundred dollars. Oh. <laughs> it was and it worked. Started, the only thing that was wrong with it was the the counter didn't work. Uh, it would just stay at zero forever. It turned out to be a cold solder joint. Huh. So just re-slaughtered this thing and the counter started working and all of a sudden the whole thing just came to life. Oh. I was like, man, I can't. The heads looked like they were brand new. Couldn't believe it. Well, when you're recording, are you recording onto tape and then laying it back to Pro Tools or through the machine or how are you doing it? Well, I use a daisy chain process. Uh, I use, um, so what I'll do is it'll go from the mic into the mic pre out of the mic pre into the tape machine out of the tape machine into pro tools and i'll run the tape machine and input so that pro tools is capturing just the through it's not actually ca capturing off the repro head yeah so i'll hit record on the tape machine and record on pro tools that way if the tape machine blows up i still have the safety copy in pro tools and then i'll playlist the whole thing like like I'll make a new playlist for the whole thing and I'll rewind the tape and reprint into the uh off the tape. The um I think on four ninety nine you get about sixteen and a half minutes or so off the tape. So I'll run it at thirty ips. So uh so I, I you know, we'll do three takes of a song and it will take a fifteen minute break and we'll print and then everybody will go back in and do it. So it takes a little bit longer, but it's really for bass drums and, and rhythm guitar, it's so worth it. I can't even describe it. It's just so worth it. I did an analog project uh four or five years ago, last one I did, at the artist's request. And really it was a pain because first of all, finding tape wasn't as easy as we thought, even in Los Angeles. And then the second thing was, you get the band going, okay, we got a five-minute song, oh, we got four minutes of tape left, so you got to rewind and, you know, go through the whole thing, and it takes momentum away. They wouldn't stay all analog, so we didn't go to Pro Tools until the very end, but it was, okay, let's do a, another vocal take. Oh, wait, we have no more tracks, you know? <laughs> so a lot of it was the fact that not doing it that often anymore, there were some limitations that I kind of forgot about. The way that I do it, I mean, I came from a tape world. Yeah, me too. When I was 19 and interning in a studio, was all they had a studer. It was an even a studer, you know, yeah. and uh, and the, you know there there are some limitations like like punching is a pain in the ass, you know. Like yeah. it's so funny because like Pro Tools guys when they learn on Pro Tools, it's so funny to watch them do it. Just sort of try to do a tape punch because they'll be great at punching in, but they don't remember to punch out. Yeah, all right, like. <laughs> <laughs> so they'll punch in and go awesome i'm like yeah but you just erase the next line yeah, you know yeah, like yeah. So they forgot to punch out so uh so it, it's it's pretty funny but the I tr what i try to do is i try to just i use it almost like a glorified plug-in yeah. now you know i basically get it into the tape get it on the pro tools and then turn the tape machine off you know um i i don't we don't go as far as you did four or five years ago uh, at least with my process now uh i find that i want to get the the maximum benefits of each medium and the maximum benefit of tape is the way it sounds so you get you get it and then you use the benefits of the pro tools medium which is speed yeah and flexibility you know so you try to maximize the the um the benefits of each medium is basically what i try to do when you're mixing, are you mixing through the console or are you staying in the box? Depends. Once again, that's I have a, 
So there's Studio A and B. Uh, I have uh, there's a Trident 80 series uh, in Studio A, uh, and it's it's actually the one I came from Fantasy Studios in L.A. Uh, it's the one that Green Day Dookie was done on. Oh yeah. Uh, so we have that that console at the studio and um and then studio b i have an old uh tack matchless uh which has been modified it's got uh the bus section has uh api 2520 op amps and uh neve output transformers so the bus section sounds really punchy and good uh i i know people laugh at me when i say this. i love that tack console it's just punchy open rock console. I like it almost even more than the Trident. Now it's clunkier, but it really does sound good. Let me give you some background on that. When I first moved to Los Angeles, I worked for Amec. I was the sales manager and I was around for the development of that, of the whole tax series. And the designer, Graham Langley, was brilliant. Just to show you, we were going to put Jensen Transformers in. Oh, we're talking to Jensen, and Dean Jensen was right next to the office that we had in North Hollywood. So Dean would not sell us anything until he looked at the schematics. I went over there with all the schematics and, and sat down in front of Dean, who was an electronics genius, and he, he looked at everything. And he goes, oh, yeah, this guy really knows what he's doing, talking about Graham. And, of course, then we made the deal. But it was one of those things where that whole company was so underrated and yet the sounds were really terrific as you're experiencing now. And with a few mods, even better. Oh, yeah. I have a, I have a Scorpion and a Matchless. Now, the Matchless to me sounds way better than the Scorpion. Yeah. But, but man, like most people don't realize that there's like, like Dan Lanois used the Matchless for years. Like all those, all that, that stuff he did with the Neville Brothers, like Yellow Moon, all that shit's done on a Matchless. Huh. Uh, I know that. One of the tunes on Nevermind uh, from Nirvana, I think it was Polly maybe or something in the way that was done on a Matchless. Uh, some of the songs on Foo Fighters, Color and the Shape uh, were done on a Matchless. Like, they, it's just a great rock console. Yeah. And uh, and I, I mixed uh, John Oates' last record on one, uh, on mine. And uh, I bought mine from a, a guy in Oregon who was a teacher at a at a music school and uh, he had done the mods himself and like i said mine is mine's clunky it's got a couple little things you know as as do all consoles from the early 80s i'm sure yeah. uh but but man when it's running it really sounds great and to talk about drum sounds unbelievable because sometimes to me the trident is almost a little too smooth yeah you know like like my hero for drum sounds is like Bob rock. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like all those, those big drum sounds, you know? So like, I feel like I can actually get closer with the matchless than I can, uh, with the Trident. Yeah. Very cool. So when you're in the box, do you have any favorite plugins? Yes. <laughs> I'm just trying to figure out what they are now. Cause it's like, it becomes so second nature. I, I got to say, I still to this day use the waves SSL plugins like they're going out of style. Um, I, it's like one of the only plugins that I don't know if I could mix without it. Mm. Like it's just because, and I know that they sound once again, a little, a little, uh, papery, you know, they can, they're not, they're not super smooth sound or whatever, but they just do a thing, you know? Um, uh, I love, uh, I really love, uh, the McDSP stuff. I think that they make fantastic plugins. I think that they're, their console, uh, their console uh, strip with the graphic EQ or whatever that not gra uh, the graphic, but the 
yeah, I guess it's a graphic EQ. Uh, that that is awesome. Their their multi band compressor is awesome. I love. Uh, I'm actually sitting right here. Let me look at my <laughs> plugins and see like uh, what I'm loving. Uh, there's a couple of things that I've been using lately that that really uh, add a little a little something that I'm I'm really surprised at how much I've been using lately. And uh, some of it is like the plugin alliance stuff, like the it's their harmonic. Uh, I think it's called a VC three or something. It's their it's a yellow box or whatever. You start throwing that thing. Like I had to, I had to watch a YouTube video on really how to use it correctly. And then once I did that. Man, you start throwing that thing around, it you know, on a couple of things. You can even put it on the whole mix, and it'll make the whole mix sound more alive. You know, it's it's really, but it's it really is like salt. Like if you you put too much of it, it'll ruin the whole thing. Yeah. Like, but it's it's a great plugin, and I love uh, I've been I've been loving uh, a lot of the Sturgis stuff. I think that their stuff is super heavy handed, but I think that. Their BG Mix stuff is great. Uh, it's real simple, but it's real great. And uh, their their delay called Soar. Yeah, that's cool. Man, what a great plugin! Uh, it's probably one of the best delay plugins I've heard in years. Yeah, I use a lot of the Valhalla reverbs too. Mm. I think that they're they're great for what they do. When I was doing when I do like music uh, for like movies and stuff, their um, which one is it? It's the uh, I have it right here. It's the the Vintage Verb. It's almost I almost can't do movie score stuff without it because the reverb is so deep sounded yeah, that yeah. you put it on strings and stuff. Oh my god, it's just it's great. You know, I'm always on the lookout for great reverb plugins if you if you know uh, if you know some because I use I still use analog reverbs. Like I I use I have a I have a 250 echo plate. Uh, I have an old AKG spring, the one that looks like a microwave. BX10. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And BX twenty was bigger, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There was one that was real tall, and then there was one that looked like a, like an old TV or something, yeah. and that's the one I have. Yeah. And uh, I bought it from uh, from Adi DeFranco, and uh, man, she she had them all, and I, I bought her, I bought them all for her, and uh, they just sound fantastic. So I use those on, and I print the reverb, you know. Ah. Uh, and we have we have a one we have a, a NEMT one twenty two the 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 plate whatever one twenty. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the the big one. We have one of those too. Well, why use a plug-in when you have the real thing? Because the plug-in's faster. Well, that's and it's true. more recallable. Yeah. Like like imagine this. Imagine you 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 printed this beautiful reverb on the vocal and you go do a mix and you send it to the artist and they say, Oh yeah, I need you, I want you to use a to fix this line or I want to recut this line or whatever on the on the vocal. So now the reverb is using the old vocal and they they replace it. You have to reprint it and it's just, you know, and it's not the easy, like the way my studio is set up, it's the stuff's all in a patch bay. I use TT patch bay, but it's, it's not like hardwired. I should do probably what, what Mike and Adi did was they had the reverbs like hardwired into the system yeah. where like it became like a plugin, you know? Yeah. But mine, I still have to like cross patch everything. Very cool, Jack. Very cool. Last question. What's the best piece of business advice that you either learned along the way or maybe somebody imparted to you? One rule that I that I live by that I find that if you could just do this, it's sort of like you can't go wrong. And that's say what you mean and do what you say. So many times people you know, you'll deal with, cause like in business, half of it is dealing with people. Yeah. 
So you basically go, or even more than half, 90% of it's people, you know? I mean, there's a lot of people that can do what I do, but it's the business relationships that I forge with people that make me successful. So, but one way that I got there is that I don't flake out, you know, like, so, I mean, if I, if I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it, you know? And, and I, I don't, I never miss deadlines, but not missing deadlines comes with saying what you mean. Like don't tell somebody that you can have something in a week. If you, if you know that you really can't, yeah, sure. you know, so don't say, Oh, I can have it for you by Friday. But in your mind, you're like, oh, I didn't really mean to say that. Like, say what you mean and do what you say. Yeah. It's a good code of ethics to live by. And you just try to just be as, as honest as you can, because people will reward you for your honesty. If you tell somebody, look, I'm just backed up right now. If you want to work with me, I'd love to work with you, but I can't get you this until then. You know, uh, then they'll respect that and they'll wait. Yeah, sure. So that's a good piece of advice to live by, in my opinion. You can find out more about Jack at jackmealy.com. That's Jack, J-A-C-K-M-I-E-L-E. All one word, jackmealy.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyowinnercircle.com, where you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, and now Radio Public. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts to new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bobby Osinski.